Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that I and Mia Wong occasionally hijack and talk about Asian American stuff. Uh, and you know, some 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 pretty interesting uh, Asian American stuff happened, which is that uh, yeah, there was a a sort of massive sweeping cultural victory question mark for the Asian American community TM when everything everywhere all at once did. Okay, I'm getting conflicting sources about exactly the record that it set at the Oscars, but it won seven Oscars, did very well. Everyone is very happy. Um, yeah, so I decided that I was going to use this to talk about some other stuff that is related to it. Um, and with me to talk about many things, including sort of the family and patriarchy and Asian American uh, like culture and media is Tiffany Yang, a filmmaker from New York. Tiffany, welcome to the show. Hi, Mia. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, thanks for being on. Um, so we, 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 we were trying to figure out how precisely we want to sort of start this because, you know, th- there's a lot of sort of angles you can take. I think the, the, the thing that I want to start with is, well, like, A, okay, Everything Ever All at Once is a very good movie in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's sort of, it, it's kind of the apotheosis of, a a structure of Asian American media that I've I've talked about before on this show. Um that I'm gonna I'm gonna run through a brief explanation of what this is. So something that I yeah, I, I've talked about a bit before that that I think about a lot is 
the way in which Asian American media has been, it 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 has a, a basically a structural form. It has there's a very specific story or set of story structures into which anything you're trying to tell has to be fit. And and mm-hmm. that that series of things is okay. So you have a small business, you have you have a bunch of immigrants that come to the U.S. or they're, they're well, usually they're already in the U.S. and they're trying to run a small business and they're having these issues sort of integrating into into sort of like white American society. And there's some kind of conflict in the family and the TV show or the movie mm-hmm. is is about like resolving this sort of conflict. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think everything ever all at once is like the best version of this that we've ever gotten in a lot of ways. But, you know, and this is something I, I talked about in the sort of New Year's episode is that there, there there's something about, I guess, Asian American, like the, the way our sort of political culture works that makes it so that this is the only story that we tell. And, you know, I mean, you, you can look at a lot of the sort of like, sorry, I, I've, I've been rambling for a lot, but I want to get this out of the way before... <laughs> <laughs> we we go further, but you know, like there, there, there's a lot of movies that are like this, like like you know shows like Fresh Off the Boat, like Iron Fist is also sort of like almost literally this, right? Um, like Turning Red is a sort of like an emblematic example of sort of thing that is exactly this, like Fresh Off the Boat is basically this, right? I think part of the sort of the, the, there's a kind of ideological shell game happening here that's about the family. Everything Ever All at Once has a lot of similarities with Crazy Rich Asians in ways that are kind of not immediately apparent. I have finally reached the point, TM, which is that both Everything Everywhere All at Once and Crazy Rich Asians end in exactly the same way, right? Which is the 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 like the 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 the, the, the sort of family tension that has that had been sort of building up and playing out throughout the entire movie, like is resolved and everyone sort of goes back to being a family. And this is interesting specifically for Crazy Rich Asians because in in the original, like in the book version of this story, the family shatters. So the plot of that movie is this this Asian-American girl is dating like this guy who's from Singapore who has not told her that he's from like an unbelievably rich like Singaporean family. And the story is about him going to is about them going to Singapore and realizing that this guy is unbelievably rich and that his family is just assholes who suck. And in the book, like the, the family like mistreats both of them really badly. And so they just leave and they book it and they cut, they cut off the rich family. But in the movie, they, some weird thing happens where like the, the main character plays Mahjong with the guy's <laughs> mom and like a miracle occurs and the family works out and everything everywhere all at once has, has a very similar sort of thing where like, the, the way this movie ends, and I, I have to say this, like I do, I do like this movie a lot. But the way that it ends is, Evelyn, who is Joy's mom, walks up to her and says, "You're fat, and I don't like that you got a tattoo, but also the family is good, and like we should work it out." And then they do, like a miracle occurs, and there's this sort of running ideology in this, which is that like the the, the family is sort of, is, too, is sort of too big to fail. Like you're you're not allowed to have a a movie that's about something that's not about the family, or b a movie mm-hmm. where you know, like the end of it is the people walk away from their family because it's hurt them a lot. Right, and I will also say that sort of Asian American 
cultural production that doesn't center the family, it actually just doesn't get read as being Asian American, right? Yeah. Like I think I um I don't know if you've um seen this, but like um Bing Liu has this beautiful documentary called Minding the Gap and it's about like mm. his mm. trauma and his like sort of youth growing up in a broken home and hanging out with skateboarding friends um some of whom are like black and that just never gets talked about as an asian american film even though it's made by an asian american filmmaker and his experience as like someone who actually migrated from china is such a big part of his story like because it's not about the sort of family conflict and reconciliation it actually doesn't get read as an asian american film a lot of the time um which to me is interesting um and yeah, I just wanted to second your point that like in both of these films, Everything Everywhere All at Once and Crazy Rich Asians, like nothing actually changes. You know, there's the reconciliation within the family, but nothing about the family structure changes. Like I think Evelyn, her, the sort of like conciliatory gesture she gives is like, oh, I'm your mom and I would always choose to be with you in any universe. I forget like the exact phrasing. It's been a while since I've yeah, seen it's like this film, like but it's something like that. It's like, you know, I would still want to be with you because I'm your mom. And it's like this very, um, the family is, is its own explanation. Yeah. And I, I, I think it points to sort of, it, this is the movie that I think hit the exact limit of this kind of, of this kind of sort of Asian family politics. Mm-hmm. Because in 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 its in in the sort of like moment where it needs to justify itself, it can't. It doesn't have anything. Mm-hmm. The, the, the moments it's sort of it's 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 it's, em- it's empty of an actual like. It's it's empty of, of of any sort of like ideological message about why this should be redemptive, right? Like just right. you know, and 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 I I think this is something that like we don't think about enough, which is that like. Like, okay, if if your mother hurts you, like, a lot, right, like, them being your mm-hmm. mother is not a redemptive thing. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot in the context of sort of transness and, and you know, it, mm-hmm. and in the ways that, like, trans people, like I mean, literally get killed by their families in the ways that they get, yeah. you know, kicked out from their families and, and the ways that sort of this 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 sort of self justification of it's good because it is right that the mm-hmm. like the relationship yeah this is sort of what you were saying right it's like it justifies itself by just like well i am your mother it's like well that's not an argument right yeah like, <laughs> right and it's not enough like i think joy spends the whole film like try fighting to be seen by her mom and in the end her mom doesn't really give any reason why she loves joy like there's nothing like specific to joy herself as a person it's just like you're my daughter i'm your mother of course i love you um and you know like why should that be something a queer child settles for like just this very basic baseline of acceptance rather than anything that like actually celebrates who they are as an individual yeah, and and that's something that I also wanted to talk about with this is like is, 
and, and this is this is not just like the specific. You know, we're, we're talking a lot about the specific movie because this is like the most recent one that's come out, and 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 mm-hmm. we're not sort of saying this to like, like the, there is a lot of like good stuff in this movie. Like this is the movie, like. Like, Joy is probably the character who is, like, closest to me who I have ever seen in anything, like, mm-hmm. at any point, right? And, like, there, there was something, you know, sort of incredibly emotional. Like, I cried a lot during this movie that was, like, incredibly mm-hmm. emotional about sort of, you know, like, mm-hmm. seeing yourself in a, th- like... Yeah. Yeah, but there's something about the way that Asian Americans, like, especially sort of, like, cis Asian Americans think about queerness that that i think is mm-hmm. is is you see in this movie which is that okay so th- this movie has two queer relationships in it right unless, unless you're going to count like the guy in the raccoon which i, I <laughs> it's funny but I I, I I i don't know about that one um <laughs> but right but but you know the the, the actual like the, the the actual two sort of like queer relationships are between joy and her girlfriend and then between evelyn and the tax lady Mm-hmm. And there's two things that are interesting about that. One is that both of the both of the characters they're in relationships with are white, mm-hmm. and very and this this is a vi- like something that's very very specifically like pointed out about Joy's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And you know, as, you know, there's the joke. It's like, well, she's half Mexican, but she's played throughout the entire thing as like an outsider who like doesn't understand what's happening in in the sort of scenes. Like, doesn't understand the family dynamic. Doesn't doesn't understand mm-hmm. his knees. Mm-hmm. And you know, and you see this again with okay. So who who ev, ev, like you know they they're able to imagine a world in which like Evelyn, the main character, who has like just been homophobic this entire movie, is in a queer relationship. And like yeah, like I good right. for her. But if you look at who it's with, right? It's it's the character in the movie who is this tax lady. Who her thing is that she is. Like, like she, 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 she is like the human representation of the sort of white supremacist, like capitalist bureaucracy mm-hmm. that is, you know, attacking this family and is sort of like driving these people into the ground. And then mm-hmm. she's sort of redeemed by, by like love and queerness. But there's this way that queerness gets positioned as outside of Asianness by yeah. the way that like the, by the, the, the way that the only possible queer relationship that they can imagine is with a white person as, and you know, as someone who's explicitly marked as an outsider. Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Like queerness, it, queerness is like attached to these anxieties over assimilation. Yeah. And from the perspective of like the older generation, like, Evelyn and Gong Gong is like the fear of them being assimilated too much into this Western culture, um, which is just a very it's it's very strange to me that this is the thing that keeps coming up in like Asian American narratives and discourses because obviously like Asian American like Asian queer cinema in Asia is like such a powerful cultural force. And the film makes all these Wong Kar Wai references, and I feel like Wong Kar Wai has made like one of the greatest yeah. works of queer cinema happy together um, of like recent decades. And so it's just it's so strange um, how queerness is being positioned as like yeah. an external threat. And I mean, like you know, you 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 could you could take a sort of like like the if you, if you want to do the lib analysis of this, like China has had queer rulers. Like there, there has there has the West produced one, like right. maybe I, I, I like possibly at some point maybe, but like 
you know, like I, it, it, it's kind of like it's ideologically frustrating, right? Like we like. <laughs> you, you know, you can fall back on the like, we know that like we have records of queer people in China for like 5000 fucking years. Right. Like, it's <laughs> you know, but like, I, I think I, I think what's really interesting about this is that this is something that's seen as so natural that people writing like even like like Asian American like writers writing about the film don't even notice it. Like they just they just sort of passively reproduce it. Yeah. And. I don't know. I, I, I think it's like, I mean, it's deeply frustrating, like being an Asian queer person, because th- this is something that like, you know, the, the, the kinds of right wing nationalism that like are like, they, they, you know, the, the, like there, there's different kinds of sort of Chinese nationalism, right. That will make, that will make mm-hmm. this like explicitly make the same argument that like gay people mm-hmm. are like a, like a, a sort of, like, I mean, I guess they would have they would have said it was bourgeois, but now it's a sort of like decadent Western like mm-hmm. imposition onto the like onto right. the world of Asia. But it's like, like no. But then, but then, but you know, you you get these like sort of like very well credentialed like progressive like Asian American writers who are just either implicitly or, or almost explicitly making exactly the same argument. Yeah. Yes. And it's also what the American right wing think, right? Like they look yeah. to China as like if you know China represents this like sexual threat of having like this society where everyone is in their place. You know, like they imagine that these sort of like traditional gender roles are much more adhered to in China, which is why it's like we're on the decline. Like China is rising, so it's yeah, it is a very weird idea that nationalists on both sides are attached to and it's disappointing that um asian americans who think of themselves as progressive or even radical kind of reproduce this unthinkingly yeah i mean one of my like recent black pill moments was i don't know if people remember this um but there, there, there there was there was someone on twitter who very kind of famously got like just like obliterated for saying that i uh, for, for 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 saying that like people people shouldn't like cancel their subscription to the new york times uh after they <laughs> like did the whole thing this they did this whole bullshit I, I, people don't know what this sort of scandal was so the uh a, a bunch of people who'd written for the new york times sent them a a very very mild letter saying like hey can you guys like fix some obvious like like not even saying fix like can you report on trans issues better here are some like glaring sort mm-hmm. of mistakes that you made in the new york times threw a hissy fit and got really mad at them and right. and you know this this person's reaction was like oh well you can't you like don't cancel your subscription like you have to support the news and it was this like sort of moment and she she is one of the hosts of like one of the big progressive asian american podcasts mm. and it was like it was this you know for me it was, like, it was this really sort of like blackpilling moment of like oh this is like this is like what, like, like, you know, what, like, like three, like three, three seventy five a month is what these people think my life is worth. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I think this kind of ideological stuff is very deeply tied into the way that Asian Americans have been representing and thinking about the family instead of recent mm-hmm. years. And but 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 before before we go into that, uh, do you know what mm-hmm. the family is trying to sell you? It is. It is the products and services that support this podcast. (laughs) We have to take an ad break. We will be right back. Okay. (laughs) 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mia, just out of just out of curiosity, since I I don't have the pleasure of listening to the ads while we're recording, like what is going to play during that? Ad oh, break? I have no idea. Like <laughs> it could be anything. I don't know. It could be a gold ad. It could be the F. Well, we haven't had the FBI tried to do it yet. We've had we've had we've had law enforcement agencies. <laughs> we've had people selling gold Ronald Reagan coins. I uh, we've had I. <laughs> well, I, I <laughs> So, I don't think I've seen that like since I was a child. I think they used to have like television commercials. Yeah, they 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 do it on podcast now. Apparently, a thing that I discovered when people <laughs> sent me the clip of it. So that's, who knows? Like like maybe 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 they'll do a Thatcher one, and you you too can own the 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 immortal words. There is no such thing as society. There is only individuals in the family. 
<laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, whatever it takes to keep the podcast running. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Um, something I wanted to sort of circle back to is, you know, I I think one of the one of the sort of one of the things about this kind of Asian American media, you know, the, uh, you have this this sort of ambivalence of like, like who, like what the sort of queer child is supposed to be, mm-hmm. and you know, like I would say this, like it is a pretty common experience if you are like a queer child of an Asian family that your family does fucked up shit to you, <laughs> um, <laughs> like <laughs> that's a thing, um, and this is I, I wanted to ask you about something that you've been talking about that I'm I'm sort of interested in which is mm. one of the th- things that that I don't know when you try to talk about this stuff there's this way in which the way we sort of collectively think about when I say we this is like I guess like a kind of specific Asian American thing the way we think about mm-hmm. trauma gets involved mm-hmm. very quickly yeah and I was wondering if you could talk about that some more yeah, I I feel like there's this there are these sort of like unspoken discursive rules where when you talk about trauma within an Asian immigrant family, there are like first of all, it's always intergenerational trauma, right? Like you can't talk about like a queer child experiencing trauma without then like getting into the fact that oh, like the parents have um experience traumatic things like through the process of immigration or like war um the refugee experience etc etc and so there's this sort of like economy of trauma where some members within the family get their trauma treated as more legitimate and others don't i think it's like really common to hear this um refrain which is like oh um second generation immigrants are like the you know people like us Asian immigrant children who were born in the West um, can't possibly know the like the real trauma that our parents or grandparents went through um, because they were the ones who like fled their countries or um, experienced war firsthand or grew up in poverty. Um, but then it's also just like when we talk about intergenerational trauma, um, there's this sort of like obfuscation of who is enacting that trauma within the family, right? Like if the intergenerational trauma exists, like who is passing it down? And so I don't, I don't know if I'm articulating myself well on this, but um, yeah, I guess the, the, the essential idea is that I think there's this like mechanism, which kind of, um immediately delegitimizes any talk of abuse or trauma from the perspective of um Asian youth or from the perspective of like the child in the family. Yeah, and I I think I think that's a kind of I don't know, th- there's this really baffling deep unwillingness in a lot of ways to think about and and I think this is a sort of broader like cultural thing too but there's this deep unwillingness to think about the family as a site of violence mm-hmm. and as a site of sort of profound violence it's like you know like it's the place where 
the the violence that shapes you comes from in, in a lo- in a lot of cases. And I mean, like I I know a lot of people. This has happened to you. This has happened to me to some extent. And there's this real kind of you know this is what this is what I actually really liked about everything everywhere all at once. It's like it like goes into that in a lot of ways. <laughs> like it is a movie for about ninety nine tenths of the movie. It is a movie about how like the people around like how how the people in your family can hurt you repeatedly and about right. the sort of like the, the 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 ways that they think about it the way but you know there's there's but 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 I I I think this is where the sort of perspective thing comes into it where like yeah we're I think like we don't really have a language to sort of talk about this stuff and the the way the film deals with it is sort of like you know, is 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 this kind of like very specific kind of nihilism, which is like definitely a thing that you can fall into, right? Like, you know, like mm-hmm. that, like that, that is definitely a reaction to being traumatized. But it's seen as like illegitimate and world destroying. I <laughs> think in a lot of ways because it causes you to sort of like if 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 that's your experience of the family, like you're going to leave. Or you're going mm-hmm. to, or you're only going to stay in by force, and so it, it, you know the mm-hmm. movie sort of rejects it. But but you know there's this way that it's very difficult to talk about this stuff and about the sort of like long arc of how people have thought about the family before us. Right. What What's an example of what you mean by like how people have thought about the family before us? Well, I I think I think in the Chinese context in particular, there's a very there's like there's. I mean, if, if if you look at what was happening in in the sort of rat like in 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 the in the sort of very radical periods in Chinese history in the last you know if you like last sort of hundred years, if you look at sort of what's going on in 1925. If you look at what happens immediately, like after the Chinese Revolution, like there there, there is a real period of like questioning questioning patriarchal authority of questioning like yeah. what is the family for like why why are we doing this and. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think the answers they came to were ultimately unsatisfying, which is that like, well, we need the family around because, like, we we our our economy does not function without uncompensated labor. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 Maoist sort of like attempt to grapple with this fails, but I I don't like as 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 with many things that Maoism attempted to grapple with, I don't think they were wrong to look at it. I think their solutions were all terrible, mm-hmm. but I I think there's this kind of I mean, there's this reaction. There's there's a kind of older Asian queer reaction, which I think is is like kind of deeply suspicious of the family as mm-hmm. you know this thing that has an enormous amount of potential to sort of inflict violence on you and sort of destabilize your life and cut you off mm-hmm. from resources and information. Right. And sort of. I mean, I I was struck by someone else making this comment um, about how like in everything everywhere all at once, you know, they can imagine like this sort of infinite um, number of universes, but in every single one, the family unit remains the same. Um, You know, like the, the social arrangement never changes across all of these different universes. Um, Yeah, I thought that was a really good point. Um, There's just like the sense in which a lot of the recent Asian American culture can't imagine the family as like something that can be transformed. It just kind of takes it for granted as this like static 
eternal structure which can't be challenged and people if they find reconciliation or happiness it needs to be somehow within that same arrangement yeah and and i think a lot of that has to do with like the thing that we've decided about elders collectively which which is mm-hmm. another one of those things that like is like the 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 legitimacy of the authority of elders is something that in in Chinese revolutionary history is something that's very much up for debate and almost right. everyone who decided to like take up arms against the state like almost all of those people were like this is messed up mm-hmm. and then you know i i think i think partially as a result of how badly sort of the maoist project goes and then also i think as 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 a kind of like explicit part of state policy there's this way in which that kind of authority gets reinscribed and any sort of questioning mm-hmm. of it gets gets looked at as like oh we're like a return to sort of like Maoist egalitarianism or whatever, which is the mm-hmm. thing that I I see a lot in the ways that, like, not really Asian Americans, but like in the in 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 I don't know. You see this in Chinese discourse, like yeah. a decent amount. I mean, you see this in kind of um, messed up ways in some of the Asian American discourse from people whose families never participated directly in the Maoist project. You know, they might have like a lot of people who immigrated here to the U.S. were, like, they were connected to the KMT. They were on the nationalist side. These are people who ideologically were never aligned with um, any sort of socialist project. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll invoke things like, well, you know, this is exactly what my ancestors were fleeing from China yeah, and it's like okay, like you guys, like I, 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 I have really bad news for you about like what the KMT's ideology was and like what those I feel like people this is, sort this of is like, like sort of th- these are like the egg monopoly people, right? Yeah, like, and, and but I, I think I, I think like th- th- this has two effects, right? Which is like on the one hand, those people like that that like specific kind of very weird Chinese anti communist. Is mm-hmm. sort of incredibly privileged in in the way that like that stuff's thought about, but then you know like there are a lot of people who are in like from like from China who are in the U.S. like specifically because of the failure of this project, and this is something else we talked about mm-hmm. in the Atlanta episodes. But like several mm-hmm. of the people like who were killed in Atlanta like were there because like liberalization drove them to a point where like they, you know, where, where they had to work to support their families. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, and, and, and the, the, the other thing that sort of comes hand in hand with liberalization is that, that, it, and I, I, I don't know, this is something that like people really don't want to think about, which is that, you know, economic and to some extent political liberalization in China came hand in hand with this massive entrenchment of the patriarchal project, which mm-hmm. is the one child policy, just sort of slamming down like a hammer of being of the state just being like, we are going to just directly like we, we, are, we are going to directly control your reproductive autonomy. We are going to, mm-hmm. you know, we are going to forcibly sterilize people. We are going to 
like we literally just limit the amount of kids you can have. We are going to make this sort of like giant, I don't know, like this enormous state intervention into like social reproduction. And mm-hmm. the the people who were the victims of that, like you don't really hear from them much. I mean, I, like what one of the stories I, 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 I'm, sorry, I'm I'm still just haunted by is that one of the people who died in Atlanta, like her family refused to bury her, like refused to take her remains to bury her because like their village was like, no, well, you, 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 you never married. So you can't be like buried in the village. And wow. Yeah. And so, you know, like her, like she had a funeral in the U S that was attended by no one who knew her because none of her friends could show up because they get arrested by the cops. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, th- there were these, like, there were these kinds of like transnational linkages of like the violence of people's families that just disappears Mm-hmm. From this sort of like narrative of like, like Asian Americanness, like is the family is this unit right. is this relation, right? And on that note, did we also want to talk about how the sort of like focus on the small business slash family or the family as a small business obscures some of the class conflicts within the Asian American community like these very massage workers you're talking about I remember in the wake of that Atlanta shootings a lot of people started they kind of use the massage workers as like an emblem of the Asian American community more broadly Um, when in fact like a lot of the sort of like more professional class Asian Americans or like the Asian Americans who get platforms in the media um they aren't like they aren't from the same class as like the massage workers are um we heard from like a lot of small business owners but those are those are the same people who like own massage parlors and hire these exploited workers to like have undocumented status and who can thus be like put into much more precarious positions than like you know U.S. citizens, and so, um, yeah. I did. You want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the small business owner is a, is a really sort of interesting and powerful character, like especially in the U.S. because it's it's like it, it's possible to be a small business owner, be really poor, but also not be propertyless. Yeah, and and I think that like. The like the specifically like the core of the American dream is is to own property, right. and you know so he, here is this class you could point to as like oh well we're really poor but you don't actually you never have to look at labor relations at all, right and that that like frees you from having to actually think about what capitalism is and and it also lets you it 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 lets really like the actual sort of like. The, the the real sort of Asian American ruling class, right? Like the actual billionaires, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, there are Asian American billionaires. There's there's a good number of them. Mm-hmm. There's also just a bunch of just Asian billionaires because there is yeah. a there's just an Asian ruling class. It lets those people, especially in the U.S., hide behind the image of the sort of small business owner, right? And they can and, you know and they can use that to launder their sort of reputation because like it's in the U.S. like. Being anti-small business is like the hardest position you can possibly take. It is like, like it is you, you, like I, I don't, I don't know if people remember this. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Vicky Osterwall, wrote this book called *In Defense of Looting*. 
Oh yeah, that's a that, great book. Yeah, great book. Everyone should read it. Uh, like there were like sitting U.S. senators were like <laughs> like yelling about the book. Like all, like a huge swath of the left <laughs> left got like unbelievably mad about it. Like a lot of you will probably also get mad about it. But like like one of the things that always comes up with 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 looting is like I. You know, it's like, well, are you going to loot small businesses? And it's like, well, actually, yeah. Like, like insofar as people looting small businesses, a lot of the times it's the people who work there, and it sucks yeah. because working for small businesses is fucking terrible. And right, yeah, or and people like, in the community where those like small businesses are and like are discriminatory towards. Yeah, and, and v- Vicky makes this point about this. There's this kind of populism that gets invoked where. You know, one of the police statements about – I think it was about Ferguson um, was they're talking about like they burned down our Walmart. And it's like, well, what do you mean our Walmart? Like we don't <laughs> fucking own the Walmart. Like we don't get shit from it. Like everyone who works in the Walmart gets fucked. Everyone has to buy yeah. from the Walmart. But it's, it's, it's this really hollow like populism. Like it's, it's this thing that like you, you assemble a community based around the around, around a corporation. And and I, I think that's kind of what's been happening with like, I think this is the reason why Asian American culture is like like this because mm-hmm. it's it's this it's like you know there's there's this this very hollow like in a lot of like like multinational like populism has been assembled around like the figure of the small business owner, but it's ultimately like it doesn't really have ideas other than you should let mm-hmm. us like you should let us make money without being racist, and also the fact like the the the, the it has that idea, and then it has the idea that the family is good because it is, and that's kind mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I. I, I don't know. I. I. Th- I think there's. There's a lot about. Well, okay. I. I will say this. Like, the. 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 The day people are okay with looting small businesses is the day the U.S. can actually fall. And any moment <laughs> until before then, like it will, it will survive because that's always the sort of last defense of of capitalism is like, what about small businesses? And you will, you will get right. people who call themselves communists who will be like, no, 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 actually, these are fine. It's like I, mm, mm. <laughs> Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I I wanted to kind of pivot back around a bit to talk about Elders a bit more because I feel like I kind of sidetracked us off of that. And I, yeah, I I think there's this really, I don't know, there's been this kind of like rehabilitation of the Elder in a way that like was something that was deeply questioned in, in periods where it was kind of like, it was more obvious and less and more socially acceptable to sort of look at the power these people have and how much it can suck. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think I noticed this picking up during, you know, the the sort of like first spate of anti-Asian a- attacks during COVID. I think that's when, like, a lot of progressive Asians started invoking the figure of the elder, right? Like, our elders are being attacked. Like, um an attack on our elders is an attack on our community, like that sort of thing, um, where the elder is kind of like used as a sort of emblem of the innocence of the Asian American community. Or what do you, like, what work do you think the elder is doing there in this discourse? Like, why does it have to be an elder? Like, what if you were just saying Asian people are being attacked? Or like, what if it was Asian youths being attacked? Like, what? why does it have to be the Asian elder? Because I think we were talking about this earlier. Empirically, it's not exactly true, right? It wasn't mostly old people who were victims of these attacks. Yeah, and I mean, I think this, this is one of the areas where, like, the Merc... Like, you know, it's really, really hard to get good data on mm-hmm. who's being attacked because, I mean, police reports are obviously incredibly unreliable, right? And then... Mm-hmm. You know, like there's self-collected data, but the self-collected data is not all-encompassing. It, it you know, it, it's sort of skewed in its own ways. But yeah, I, I think I think there's this way in which, like, I don't know, like I think there's almost this way in which elders almost are like it, it, they're also like like personally infantilized by it. 
where it's like yeah. they're picked as this sort of like like part of like they they use this as a sort of symbol of like people who can't defend themselves, which partially isn't true. Like there were actually examples of like Asian elders like defending themselves, but but it it, it does this kind of like and also like the the rates of um, gun purchase purchases went up. With it. I mean, I, I know, like, just anecdotally in the Chinese-American community, I knew so many, like, chi- like elderly Chinese people who were like, I'm going to go out and buy a gun now. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, the, the way that that thing it was invoked ha- has a lot of sort of, like, I don't know, it, 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 was, it was, like, there was this way in which they like they became framed as like this is sort of like this is the apotheosis of like everything that it is to like be Asian American, mm-hmm. and that like that like the fact that that was under attack was this sort of incredible crisis, right? And I think like I I think there's like that obscures a lot about what was happening, which is that like if if, if there was one clear trend in the data it was that women were being attacked at like a way higher rate than anyone else mm-hmm. and you know and, and this has been a a thing that has sort of continued which is like i don't know like there's been more attacks in the last like few months right and it's 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 been a lot of like young women getting like young asian women getting pushed in front of trains mm-hmm. and people have just really stopped caring like <laughs> yeah to to the extent where like it's, 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 like, it's like literally a meme that you can like watch the the cycle of like the the stop api hate like signs coming up and down mm-hmm. right and i don't know i i i i, I think i think the the elder part of it kind of like it obscured a lot of what was actually happening yeah i i feel like the last incident that really made a splash in the media was um the murder of christina yuna is that her I, f- I forget what her last name is, but um, Christina Yuna Lee um, getting murdered in Chinatown. And this was already a year ago. Um, and I haven't really heard anything since. Like, I see things in the local news. Um, that Where I live in Queens recently had a, a, a couple of attacks um just a, a week ago i think but it didn't make the national news or anything yeah and i i i think the way that the kind of like hierarchy of victimhood i guess affected that like has it had mm-hmm. i mean you know, I, i'm not sure it's the biggest like single reason why everyone has sort of stopped caring but mm-hmm. like i like I, I think the sort of stop api hate like that moment kind of only happened because there was this sort of backlash against like, there was this backlash against black lives matter and against the insurrection and people needed another, people needed a kind of like ideologically safe, like thing, like way of demonstrating like how good their politics were or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think it definitely contributed to sort of why, like, stuff has been abandoned and i also wanted to ask do you see this this thing this fixation on elders um is happening at the same time that ancestors get invoked a lot in like asian american literature especially 
queer literature. Um, I'm thinking of authors like Ocean Wong. Like, how did ancestors become such a thing? Yeah, it's really. I, I don't know. I really don't understand how that happens. Like, a lot of my ancestors fucking sucked. Like, I, I don't like. I like. I, I don't know how to sort of like. I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I have this sort of. I don't know. I, I, I have this sort of weird sense of the kind of politics at work here, which is like there, there's a lot of kinds of politics that I think can work. in, for example, in indigenous contexts that are very, very powerful that don't really work in the Asian American context where like, like right. our ancestors, like if you're Chinese, right, your ancestors did some fucked up shit. Like your ancestors right. did a lot of genocides. Like you, you like you know. And, yeah. and I, I think I think this is something that's actually at the core of of the of kind of like right wing Chinese nationalism, which is that like mm-hmm. right wing Chinese nationalism is basically about the anger that China was like ceased to be able to be an empire. Mm-hmm. Because like if you look at the sort of colonization process, right? Like the 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 Qing are this very very expansionist, like like sort of militarist imperial state, right? Like they they mm-hmm. they 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 like they they conquer like they 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 fight a bunch of wars around Tibet. They conquer Xinjiang. And they do a genocide there. Like immediately, they're pushing south. They're pushing like they're they're basically pushing like in every direction they can possibly push, and then. They kind of like you know they 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 hit like a a pretty impressive territorial boundaries and then their ability to do imperialism gets kind of halted because suddenly there's other imperial powers like in the region and you know it's the sort of end of this is like they 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 lose all these wars and you have the start of like this you have the start of the century of humiliation and all of the sort of stuff that happens there but it's like like the actual thing that they're like the actual thing that the, that the century of humiliation people are humiliated about well, I mean the fact that it's called the century of humiliation and not like I don't know like the like the century of death or something mm-hmm. which uh, for people who don't know what the century of humiliation is um so the, I, I think it's it's I think that the, the actual it's I think it's like 1840 to 1940 there's this sort of nationalist term around understanding this period in which China is undergoing like you know like it, it is genuinely like like people in China are like suffering enormous imperial violence um you like i like unfathomable numbers of people die in this period this is like the opium but basically a period from the opium wars until you know sort of through the various japanese conquests and then sort of ending essentially with the revolution but uh, yeah I, I don't know like i think it's interesting that it's it's understood in the in terms of national humiliation in terms of sort of like the loss of this ability to do like i mean to do imperialism and instead of in sort of terms of like the just unfathomable human suffering that went on, and and I I I think this all of this sort of comes back to this weird kind of intensification of of nationalism kind of among everyone in in the last like especially since 2020, you know I mean there, there's been there's been in like mm-hmm. a kind of like explicit like Chinese nationalist turn in some parts of the left, but I think I think it's really kind of like hit everyone in ways that like hasn't really been examined mm-hmm. there's been this kind of difficulty in in having a kind of like theoretical and cultural language to speak about asian americanness 
partially because well because so like the, the you know I've talked about this before right but like the 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 the, the term Asian American was created by like third worldists, right? Many right. of whom are Maoists, some of whom are certain Marxist Leninists. But like that that whole language just died. I mean, like you know, you you you, you can still find like Baba Vankian or whatever. But like the the the, the, the sort right. of language is like understanding yourself as part of the third world, and like you know, like in, as as like a liber- national liberation movement. Like that's over. National liberation is basically dead as a politics. Like. And mm-hmm. any, any anyone who tried it after a certain point, like, just got called secessionists and now just get murdered horribly. Um, and like, you know, and there's there's obviously also the sort of like China, Vietnam, Cambodia fighting each other thing that that has this massive right. impact on on that kind of politics, and and it gets replaced with um this kind of politics that's based that you know it it, it gets sort of replaced by like the the Asian civil rights movement stuff, right. But like, there's, there's no. The thing is, the Asian civil rights movement is it doesn't have politics. Like, its politics are completely incoherent. Like, you have, yeah. I mean, like, you literally have these marches where you have like, like old school like KMT death squad guys like marching next to Maoists, <laughs> and it's like, because it's supposed to be a sort of like pan ideological thing, and, and, and over time, like all the all the ideologies that were supposed to compose it die, and mm-hmm. but the, but that meant that like there's there's no like. There's no actual language to sort of talk about the experience because the, the the two sets of vocabularies that like or like wait like frames of understanding the struggle are just have both kind of like either either basically collapsed or been discredited and and mm-hmm. I think that leaves this hole and people are trying to fill the hole by like adopting other people's politics but like it doesn't work for us I don't think like I I, I don't know like I, yeah. I like I, I think people will disagree with me about the potential of of sort of ancestor politics and the politics of elders, but like I don't think it does that much for us. Yeah, I think the last thing that that I do want to say is, you know, if if we've reached the limits of a lot of the politics that we've been seeing here, um, what 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 kinds of politics and what kind you know also sort of what kind of media do you, do you do you see as stuff that we can use to go beyond this because i think there is a lot of like like there are a lot of like people creating good like queer stuff that are mm-hmm. not like <laughs> yeah actually i think i mentioned this to you um i recently watched this film called return to soul um it's by a director called Davy Chu, and it's about a French Korean adoptee. So she was adopted from Korea as a baby. I mean, yeah, as a baby by French parents and grew up in France. And um, the film is like kind of a journey of her going back to Korea and meeting her birth family. But it's like, it's not, it doesn't fall into the same sort of like, family natalist politics it's very like deeply questioning of um of the family and of even like this idea that um i guess what the sort of like wayward queer stray asian child like needs in order to heal from trauma like she she doesn't really have um reconciliations with 
either family, like either her French family that she comes from, like they're very much sidelined in this film. Um, they just don't play that big of a role. <laughs> and then she, and then when she goes to Korea, you know, she has these very like awkward encounters meeting her birth family. Cause they're like immediately like, Oh, you know, we're so sorry. We gave you away. Now you're back. You could come live with us. And then she's just like, hold on. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I consider you my family. And so it, it seemed to me like to really um, depart from this like script that we've become so accustomed to in Asian diasporic film in a really interesting way, I thought. And it, it's also a lot about music. Like it's a very moody music driven film. It doesn't feel that identitarian. Yeah. I would recommend everyone <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> Everything I'll ever all at once is we have now we have now told the best version of that story, and I, I think we can find, yeah. you know, I would just like like this is this is a really broad recommendation, but like go, like go watch one car. Like this is this okay? This is the most film nerd I'm ever gonna get that doesn't involve I I why am I suddenly blanking on the name of the thing? Sorry, Daniel. Uh, the most film nerd I'm ever gonna get that doesn't involve La Commune de Paris, eighteen seventy one, is go watch one car. Why like. There, there. I don't know. I, I, I think, I think there is something to be gained by looking at, you know, I mean, the like looking at Hong Kong cinema, looking at, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I like good, good, like Americans have finally realized that Korean cinema is really good, which is wonderful. Um, I'm, right. I'm glad, I'm glad we're you know getting to the place where people realize that it's that like there's a lot of great stuff going on there, but. We know it is possible to, for Asians to tell different stories because all across the world they already are, right? Like we right. we we are already telling stories that are different and more interesting than this. And I think, mm-hmm. well, then and I'm not specifically saying like then everything ever all at once, but then that then then the specific structure that that these that the Asian American movies fall into, and yeah, people should go discover them because they're great. And yeah, we can find new and better kinds of queer joy and. <laughs> yeah yeah tiffany thank you so much for joining us and being on. i don't know why i'm saying us as if there's more than me here but <laughs> yeah thank you thank you for being on the show yeah anytime thank you for having me on and it's been a really stimulating conversation yeah yeah this this has been naked happened here you can find us at happened here pod on twitter and instagram you can find calls on media at calls on media I hope it's close on media. I'm actually not 100% sure if that's... I, I should know this by now. I, I, I simply have not learned. Um, yeah. Go, 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 go into the world. Be gay. Do crime. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.